Good evening. It's good to be back out with you all uh, this evening. It's good to see your faces and to once again have an opportunity to worship and to study together. Um, Jeremy and I to this evening are going to be doing a, a question and answer as Kevin alluded to. And I believe this is the third time now uh, that we've done this. It's been a very encouraging experience for me to, to see some of the questions that are being asked but then also to have the opportunity to dive in and to study some of those things. And that has been an encouraging process for me. And we've gotten some wonderful questions over the course of, of doing these. Some of them have led to uh, more elaborate studies, perhaps even sermons, and some of them will address in a setting like we are this evening. So we each have two questions that we're going to, uh, to give a response to this evening. And as I, as I have thought about this, both in the previous two times as well as this evening, uh, the, the example of the Bereans in Acts chapter 17 continues to come to mind every time I, every time I do this. To, to think about the, 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 the mindset and the attitude that God wants us to have when we have questions or when we hear something. Our, our attitude should be to, to test those things against the scriptures and to be, to be diligent students, to open up God's word and to see what he has to say on these issues. We shouldn't be afraid of that. We shouldn't shy away from those questions. But we should go to the true source of those answers, and that is God's Word. And so this evening, Jeremy and I will do the best that we can to point you to God's Word as we seek to provide some answers to some of the questions that have been asked. So here's the first one that uh, I'm going to discuss this evening, and it's in regards to prayer, and perhaps more specifically, persistent prayer. That was the wording that the the person who asked this question used. They, they referenced Luke chapter 18 and 2 Corinthians chapter 12. We'll talk about those in just a moment. But then the crux of the question was this. Is it okay to continue praying about a physical or health issue that we or a loved one is dealing with, even if it means asking for God's intervention beyond what medical science can offer? And so there's actually a lot tied up in this question. The idea of praying repeatedly about a certain issue, uh, the idea of praying specifically about physical or health issues, and then the idea of praying about things that in the eyes of medicine, science, the world, would, would be deemed as impossible or at least unlikely at the very least. And so let's, let's talk a little bit about this. And before we dive into it, I, I do want to address specifically the passages that, that the individual who asked this question alluded to in Luke chapter 18, first and foremost. And you can turn over there if you want. We're not going to read that. But Luke chapter 18, verses 1 through 8, is a parable that Jesus tells. And it's a parable about a woman who approaches an unjust judge. And, and, and there are times, I think, where perhaps that parable has been used uh, to, to talk about the idea of repeatedly asking God for something until he almost reluctantly agrees to... To, to answer your request. And I, I don't believe that's what this passage is talking about at all. And I would actually caution us against using this passage as it pertains to the idea of prayer in general. This is a passage in Luke chapter 18. This is, this is a passage that is talking about justice. And, and, and it's pointing out the fact that true justice can only be found in God, not man. And, and so I would caution us against using a passage like this when, when talking about the idea of prayer. However, 2 Corinthians chapter 12, I think, is an important one uh, to look at when talking about this particular issue. You can turn over there if you want, 2 Corinthians chapter 12, uh, and we'll just real quickly read this beginning in verse number 7. 
This is Paul writing his second letter to the Christians in Corinth, and he says, beginning in verse 7, Unless I should be exalted above measure by the abundance of the revelations, a thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I be exalted above measure. Concerning this, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might depart from me. And he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, most gladly, I will rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. I think verse 7 is key to, to what Paul is discussing here in, first, in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. He recognizes why God chose not to remove the thorn from his flesh. It isn't because his prayers were not being answered. It isn't because God didn't have the power to remove whatever it was that was ailing him. That wasn't it at all. The reason that the thorn was not removed from Paul is so that he would not be exalted above measure by the abundance of revelation. There is an element of humility that God is applying to Paul through this thorn in the flesh that he has been given. And so this wasn't an instance in which God didn't answer Paul's request. It wasn't an instance in which Paul prayed too much or too little about something or that God didn't have the power to do it. But God purposefully chose not to remove that for this very reason that Paul recognizes in chapter 12 and verse number 7. So, with that in mind, having addressed kind of the two passages that were initially uh, brought up by the person asking the question, I think it's important then to just briefly look at what the Bible does say about prayer and about persistent prayer, and even in prayers in regards to health and healing and those types of things. And, and I put up on the board a few different passages I think that are important. We certainly won't look at all of those uh, this evening, but if you're one to take notes and you want to jot some of these down and look at them later, um, that would be that would be great. But I'm going to just point your attention to a couple of these that we'll read together. The first one's in Ephesians chapter six. Ephesians chapter six. Let's begin in verse number seventeen, and we'll read verses seventeen through twenty of Ephesians chapter six. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. And for me, that utterance may be given to me, that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that in it I may speak boldly as I ought to speak." This passage, along with others, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 17, Colossians chapter 4, and verse 2, they point to the importance of consistent prayer. Praying often, praying persistently. This is not something that as Christians we should shy away from. This is God's way for us to communicate with him. And therefore, if something is on our mind, if there's something that we're struggling with, We need to be communicating with him about it. And he is never going to close the door on that. He never puts a limit on how many times we can approach him, how many times we can talk to him about something that is bothering us. In Philippians chapter 4 and verse 6, he makes it very clear that he wants us to make our requests known to him. The passage I've listed in 1 John chapter 5, verses 14 and 15, John there tells us that we should have confidence in the prayers that we offer 
And so clearly God wants us praying often and frequently and consistently to him about the things that are on our minds, about the things that we are struggling with. Now, specifically, as it pertains to the other two aspects of this question, number one, the idea of praying about things of a physical or medical nature, and then secondly, praying about things that from the eyes of the world or the medical community seem impossible. Let's turn first to James chapter 5. Two passages that I want to turn your attention to as it pertains to this, uh, this aspect of the question. James chapter 5, and, and let's read together beginning in verse number 13. James 5, beginning in verse number 13. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing psalms. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Confess your trespasses to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three years and six months. And he prayed again, and the heaven gave rain, and the earth produced its fruit. This is a powerful passage of scripture. James is very specifically talking about people who are suffering and people who are sick, and the idea of praying fervently as he says in verse number 16. And then he even brings up Elijah and the situation in which he prayed, and it did not rain for three years and six months. And then he prayed again, and it did. This is a, a powerful passage of Scripture as it pertains to prayer. And it very clearly teaches us that when it comes to issues of a physical or a health nature, we should be praying to God about those things. And let's not forget, let's not forget, we live in a day and time in which science has made huge leaps and bounds. But let's not forget who the true physician is. Let's not forget the one who spoke the world into existence. Let's not forget the one who set the laws that science and medicine are bound by. It's God. And so there may be instances where the medical community says this is not possible. Okay. Okay. I can accept that. But I'm going to pray to the true physician about that. And I'm going to allow him to make the decision in this situation. And I think what some of these passages and many others teach us is that as children of his... We need to have the confidence and the faith in him to accept whatever the answer to that prayer is. But to also have the same confidence and the same faith in him to pray those prayers in the first place. Let's not get trapped into to locking God into a box. That, well, this, this isn't something that would interest him, or this isn't something that's in his realm of expertise. I'm going to leave this one up to the doctor's. Let's not, get, let's not fall into that trap. God is all-knowing. God is all-powerful. Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 20, the last passage we'll look at in this particular section of Scripture, tells us just that. 
Ephesians chapter 3 and verse number 20. Now to him who is able to do exceedingly, abundantly, above all that we ask or think according to the power that works in us, to him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. That is the God that we serve. The one who can do more exceedingly and abundantly above anything that we could possibly think or imagine. That's the God that we serve. Let's reflect that in our prayer life. Let's pray to him like we believe that. That he truly is a God who can do far more than our minds can comprehend. And so I don't think that the Bible teaches that we should put a limit on prayers. And I absolutely believe that the passages that we've looked at and some of the others here on the screen that we didn't look at teach. And when it comes to physical or health issues, we should be actively involved in prayer to God in those situations. And we should pray to him knowing that he is the God who can do more than our minds can possibly comprehend. Okay, question number two. After this one, I'll turn it over to Jeremy, and he will take questions three and four. So this question, and I I paraphrase the actual wording of the question, but what should a Christian's attitude be toward dancing? So this is a, a topic that perhaps some of you have studied, perhaps some of you have not. Uh, it, it's an interesting question. It, it's one that I think is, is worthy of some discussion, but, but I want to look at it perhaps less specific than the question itself is asking, and here's why. In the Old Testament, the idea of dancing is seen repeatedly. Uh, many, I mean, I've, I've put just, uh, I put three up here on the screen, but, but as I was, I was doing a word search on it, I mean, I, there were 30 or more passages in the Old Testament that talked about the idea of dancing, and most of them in similar manners as the three that I put up here on the board. In 2 Samuel chapter 6, and verse number 14, Dan, David dances before the Lord. In Psalm 30 and verse 11, God turned mourning into dancing for David. And then in Psalm 150 and verse 4 and many others, we see dancing used as a form of praising God. And throughout the Old Testament, we see that repeatedly, many, many times, very similar wording used, and where dancing is used as a form of praise or an expression of joy. That simply is not the case in the New Testament. Best as I could tell, dancing is only mentioned twice in all of the New Testament. And neither time is it used in any form of instruction. And so I am not in any way, we cannot stand up here and in any manner say unequivocally that dancing is sinful, dancing is wrong, we shouldn't be engaged in any form of dancing. The New Testament simply does not say that. But there are some principles taught in the New Testament that we certainly need to be mindful of when thinking about this topic and others similar to it. Because there are some potential dangers that can come when dancing is involved, or again, other forms of activity. This is the one specific to the question. But I have up here, for instance, the idea of lust. 
That's something that the Lord warns us against repeatedly. I have several passages up here that, that talk about that. I want to read just a couple with you. Turn to 1 John chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2. Begin in verse number 15. 1 John 2, verse 15. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world is passing away in the lust of it, but he who does the will of God abides forever. And so when you think about the idea of dancing, is there the potential risk of putting yourself in a situation where you would be tempted to lust? Yes, that is a possibility. Is it a foregone conclusion? Not necessarily, but it's certainly a possibility and one that we need to be cautious about. Look at 1 Peter chapter 4 with me. 1 Peter chapter 4, we see some similar language, at least similar ideas presented in 1 Peter chapter 4, beginning in uh, verse number 3. Peter says, Therefore we have spent enough of our past lifetime in doing the will of the Gentiles, when we walked in lewdness, lusts, drunkenness, revelries, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. In regard to these, they think it strange that you do not run with them in the same flood of dissipation, speaking evil of you. They will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this reason, the gospel was preached also to those who are dead, that they might be judged according to men in the flesh, but live according to God in the spirit. And so again, there are warnings given as it pertains to lust and to lewdness and to rowdy parties of, of different natures that certainly in different forms can, re, can certainly be present when dancing takes place. So are there some principles that apply to this particular topic? Sure, there are. Sure, there are. And we need to be careful about those. Don't put yourself in a situation where you're going to be tempted to lust. Don't put yourself in a situation where lewdness and sexuality is going to run wild. Because those things are sinful. And you're putting your soul at risk in that situation. Now, dancing is not mentioned in any of these lists as being inherently sinful. And so, are there instances where dancing could take place, where lust is not a problem, where lewdness is not a problem, where sexuality is not a problem? Yes. And so, at the end of the day, each of us are going to have to make some decisions about this. But the principles that God teaches as it pertains to how we are to keep ourselves holy and righteous and pure in his sight, and to stay free of these things that separate us from him, should take priority. And if that means we don't go certain places or do certain things, then so be it. Because my soul is that important. And I'm not going to treat these things lightly. So at the end of the day, each of us are going to have to make some decisions about this topic and others like them. But in conclusion to the question itself, is there anything inherently wrong with dancing? I, the Bible does not teach that. But some of the principles that we talked about this evening, I think, could apply to this particular topic. And 
Lastly, before we stop, I, I want to I leave us with a passage in Jeremiah chapter 17. Just a couple of weeks ago, we spent Sunday morning and Sunday evening in Jeremiah chapter 17. And so this was fresh on my mind. And I think it's an important one when, when having a conversation like this. Because this is, where, this is where our minds should go. As opposed to asking the question of, is it sinful to do this or that? Think about what Jeremiah says here in Jeremiah chapter 17 and verse number 10. I, the Lord, search the heart. I test the mind, even to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his doings. God is going to search your heart. He is going to test your mind. He is going to know what your motivations are, why you're doing or not doing certain things. Understanding and recognizing that should guide us as we make decisions about where we're going to go, what we're going to do, the people that we're going to be around, the circumstances that we're going to put ourselves in. Knowing that there is nothing hidden from God, that he is going to search our heart, and he is going to give to us according to the fruit of our doings. And that's something that I hope will help us as we tackle topics like this and others. Jeremy? All right, question number three. I'm just on a great segue between that and this one, so we're just going to say question number three. So question number three is this. There's a lot of ways surrounding all the different translations of the Bible that we have. The question was worded this way. Why are there so many different translations of the Bible and in what ways are they different? A really, really good question, and I will add a really important question. You know, just doing a, a, just a quick search, there are loads of translations of the Bible, loads of them. There are roughly 50 that I would say are pretty commonly used, certainly some more than others, but even that number is pretty big. I mean, 50 translations of the Bible, surely there are some differences, and surely there are some important differences, and I will contend there are absolutely some differences, and I will also contend there are absolutely some important differences, differences that each and every one of us here need to be aware of. Because I will contend there are some translations of the Bible that it would be good for you to regularly read and study from. And at the same time, I will stand here, as I will here in just a moment, and warn you about other translations of the Bible and advise against using regularly your reading and studying from. And so let's talk just briefly about the differences in the translations, and in all of the translations, all of them will fall into one of three categories. And in each of those three categories, I think one of those categories that will house several translations would be good for us to choose from, to regularly use, to, to study from, to read from. And the other two categories can be used to reference, but I would advise against regularly using and studying from them. And we'll talk about why that is here in just a moment. And so the first kind of category of translations that we'll talk about, all these, of course, English translations of the Bible, will be the idea of a literal translation or a word-for-word -word translation. 
That is a translation of the Bible where scholars will get together and they will just use ancient biblical manuscripts that we have to the best of their abilities, the, the ones that we have at our availability and at our fingertips. And they will go through those Greek or Hebrew manuscripts and they will then translate that into our language and they will do so word for word. Here is the word in the Greek and here is the word in the English. Here is the word in the Hebrew. Here is the word in the English. They will do so word for word. And that's why you'll often hear literal translation or word for word translation. So I'm going to give you just an indication about what four of those translations are. We're going to start with the oldest of those. The very first translation for that to happen was the King James version of the Bible. And that was translated into English in 1611. And that was so long ago, it's even difficult for me as an old fella to even comprehend 1611. But that was the year that the King James Version of the Bible was translated, 1611. And so when we begin to think about that, there are some disadvantages, even though it is a translation that is used and was translated literally or word for word. Well, the disadvantages for us today is the English language in 1611 is not the English language in 2020. It is different. Even different words in the King James Version even mean different things today. But also, the transcript availability in 1611 is not what it is today. We often make reference to the greatest discovery, probably biblical discovery, archaeological discovery for sure, would be the Dead Sea Scrolls happened long after 1611. The four major New Testament manuscripts that are used today, the four that are used, none of them had been discovered in 1611. So there are some disadvantages to that, but we have others that are in the same boat. The New King James Version, which I've made mention many times that I use, I know John uses it as well, is a translation that came about in 1975, 1975, and it certainly uses... Uh, different language than what you had in 1611, but also the manuscript advantages as well. The New America Standard Bible was first translated in 1960, kind of a revised of the American Standard Bible, and that was in 1901, I believe. That's an off-the-top-of-my-head shot, I think, in that neighborhood. But it's even been updated a couple times. 1995 was a massive update that was uh, pretty across the board well known. And they had just updated again. Not a lot of people know. It's kind of hard to get your hands on right now because it really, in a lot of ways, was a digital update. But in 2020, the New American Standard Bible provided another update. And then the ESV, or the English Standard Version, is a Bible in that same vein as well that was translated in the year 2001. All of these translations are word-for-word, literal translations. All of these, save for the King James Version, for reasons that we made reference to, I would advise for us to use, and to use regularly. And why would we say these things in this way? I want us to think about a passage that we have like in 2 Timothy chapter 3. In 2 Timothy chapter 3 verses 16 and 17, you have there the Apostle Paul and talking about Scripture and making the point that the Scripture that we have is from God. And so the Bible that I'm regularly using, I want to make sure it is his words, not man's words. Because what happens in the other two categories that I said that we have is man's thoughts start to enter the picture. 
And when I'm studying God's word, I want it to be that. God's word. Not man's word, but be God's word. And so the other categories that we have commonly are this, is this idea, and it's usually referenced this way, a thought-for-thought translation. Now, much like the literal translation, this type of translation is also based on the consultation of ancient manuscripts, which is good. But unlike the literal translation, the scholars that were going through or those translators would then decipher what the original text might say. And then they'll interpret that, that thought to what they believed the writer was trying to convey to the readers. Now, they'll go to the original ancient manuscripts, but then they'll kind of convey the thought about what they were trying to get across. And so that's why you have this idea of a thought for thought. And the problem with translations like this, and you probably already are knowing that in your mind or certainly sensing it in your mind, is that this type of translation then can become very agenda-heavy. Very agenda-heavy. And so, for instance, an example of a thought-for-thought translation that is really popular, and we'll talk about how popular at the close of this question, is the New International Version, the NIV. Originally given in 1978 was the original translation of that. It's been updated as well, an update that went out in 2011. This is a thought-for-thought translation. And because of that, it is a dangerous, dangerous Bible to lean on because it's filled with agenda. I'm not saying it can't be referenced. I'm not saying it can't be looked at. But I would advise strongly against leaning on it as your regular study Bible. Just for instance, in the book of Romans itself, in the New International Version, the word or the term sinful nature is found 23 times. Think about that. Sinful nature, 23 times in the book of Romans. A phrase like that isn't found in the New Testament text. It is a Calvinistic thought that creeps into these kinds of things. And so when we're making our choices, we need to have this in our mind. I'm going to make one other point, and then we'll kind of draw all this together. The third kind of category, if you will, is the paraphrase Bible. And it does just what it says it does. It paraphrases. This translation not only carries all of the same concerns that the thought-for-thought translation of the Bible does, but it even goes a step further, where it usually isn't to pull from ancient documents. They're pulling from older Bibles, and they're just paraphrasing what they have or what they see. And so all of those same concerns are there. The most popular of those translations by a huge margin is the New Living Translation. It was updated and put together in 1996. And it is wildly popular, wildly popular right now. But again, not a bad Bible to reference from time to time, but I would strongly advise against using it as your regular study or teaching or reading Bible. Because I'm not interested in what man thinks, I'm interested in what God thinks. And so I have to do the very best that I can to make sure I'm getting what God would have me to get. And that only comes from this idea of using a word-for-word translation or a literal translation. How big of a deal is all this? Well, I'm going to share with you one final thing before we get to the last question. 
I looked up the most sold translations of the Bible in the world. The most sold translations, probably in the year 1611 to the year 2011, it was the exact same translation. The King James Version, the most sold English translation of the Bible. But in 2011, for the very first time, it was taken over as the number one sold English translation of the Bible in the world. And in 2011, that Bible was the NIV version. It's remained number one even through 2020. 2021 uh, isn't out yet. 2020 is. And so in 2011, the NIV was number one. And it remains number one today. For instance, I made mention of the New Living Translation, how wildly popular it is. In the year 2011, it was the fourth sold English translation of the Bible. Today, 2020, it is the third. The NIV, number one. King James Version, number two. New Living Translation, number three. It's a scary thought to me. The most used or sold Literal word-for-word translation is the English Standard Version, the ESV. But interestingly enough, in 2011, it was number four, and in 2020, it is number five, slipping. The New King James Version is the fifth sold in 2011, or the fifth sold, excuse me, in 2020, and... Or 2011, it was the third, so it has slipped from third to fifth, and the New American Standard Bible has slipped from seventh to tenth. It was interesting to me. And we need to make sure, as God's people and interested in what God has to say, that we are looking for just that. So this is a conversation that is bigger than maybe these few minutes that we've had, and if you've got other questions about that, I'd be more than happy to talk deeper about these things. But all of this information is available. I would also advise, probably no one has ever done it, but every single Bible, every single one has a preface page. Every single Bible has a preface page. I would encourage you to read it. Because in that preface, it will tell you exactly how your Bible was translated. It is interesting reading indeed. And so question number three there. Finally, much smaller amount of time, question number three. Or no, question number four. The question was this, as word for word. This one wasn't even adjusted. This is the word for word question we got. I want a relationship with God, but I feel like I don't. What do I do? Interesting, interesting question. I'm going to kind of break it up into two pieces. I looked up just for fun the definition of the word relationship. It's a word we use a lot, but if we were to just define it, how would it be defined? And the dictionary defines it this way. The quality or state of being related, a continuing attachment. I like that. A continuing attachment or association between persons. I want to talk about our relationship with God just for a second. And I want us to begin by understanding that a relationship between God and man from God's perspective, is what he desperately wants. He's indicated it. He's indicated it from the very beginning. In the pages of the Old Testament with the people of Israel, he would indicate how badly he wanted a relationship with those people. And in the pages of the New Testament, he will badly indicate how much he wants 
a relationship with his people. A couple of examples. Leviticus chapter 26 and verse 12. Leviticus chapter 26 and verse 12, where God there is talking to the people of Israel, and he'll make this statement. I will walk among you and be your God, and you shall be my people. It's an incredible relationship passage. I'm going to walk among you. I'm going to be yours. You're going to be mine. It's an incredible and incredible picture. It's an interesting that Kevin started in Psalm 8. In Psalm 8, in just the passage that he read as I was sitting there thinking about it, verse 4, what is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you visit him? It's incredible that he wants a relationship with us, but most certainly he does. In Acts chapter 17, when Paul is preaching to the people of Athens about the unknown God, a people that isn't familiar with Jehovah God, isn't familiar with Scripture, and he talks to them about the God who has created everything. And listen to how he introduces him. In Acts chapter 17 and verse 24, he says, God who made the world and everything in it, since he is the Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything, since he gives to all life, breath, and all things. And he has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on all the face of the earth and has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation. Listen, verse 27, so that they should seek the Lord in the hope that they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. You see, Paul makes the point that God has announced himself in such a way that everyone should hear him and want to go find him and want to seek for him and grope even for him. He is clamoring for a relationship with us. He wants us to know him. He wants us to go to him. And so as we come back to this question, I want a relationship with God. If I feel like I don't, what do I do? I want us to think as we kind of answer the back half of this question. What do we do in any relationship? What do we do in any relationship? Just think of a physical relationship, someone we know or someone we're acquainted with, and we really have a desire to be closer to them, to get to know them more, to have a deeper relationship with them. What do we do? Well, it takes getting around them more. It takes getting to know them better. It it takes listening to them. It takes talking and communicating with them. That's how we build a relationship with people. And that's how we build a relationship with God. You want to have a relationship with God, a God who desperately wants to have a relationship with you. It takes getting around him more. It takes getting to know him better. It takes listening to him. It takes talking to him. Building that relationship to a point where you understand an incredible thing has occurred. The creator of all things, the God of heaven, has made a sacrifice for you because he desperately wants to spend eternity with you. When you come to an understanding of that, it's an incredible thought. But one other aspect of this question I want to kind of close with and we'll move into an invitation. 
is that takes a level of confidence, a level of faith. That God is who he says he is, that God will do what he says he will do. Can we trust that? Absolutely we can. Can we have confidence in that? Absolutely we can. You read passages like 2 Timothy chapter 4 and where, where Paul is expressing his confidence in his relationship with God. It's at the very end of his life. He has a relationship with God and he's confident that he has one. That's a passage that shows me I can be confident. I can have a relationship with God. I can be confident in that relationship. I pray that everybody can get to a point like that. As we bring this session to a close and Kelvin leads us in a song of invitation, this question really lended itself very well to those kinds of thoughts. Because we've already made the point that God wants to have a relationship with us. He desperately wants that. He is holding out his hand. He's done the heavy lifting. He's come way more than halfway. Way more than halfway. I guess in a lot of ways the the question should be, do I want to have a relationship with God? And if the answer is yes to that, as we sing this song of invitation, we've got an opportunity to do something about that. And it may be that you're here tonight and your answer is yes, a sincere yes. And you know that being baptized into Christ and having your sins washed away puts you in that relationship with God and you need to do that? Well, let's get that done tonight. Or maybe your answer is yes, but you just don't know. You don't know what that next step is. Well, talk to me about that afterwards. Talk to John about that afterwards. Let's have a conversation about that. An opportunity that we have to think about all of those incredible things. If we can help you in any way, you let us know as we stand and sing.